This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the IC Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Everybody, this is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega coming to you with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast summer special volume two on the IC Robots Radio Network. We are in the heart of summer here in Santa Rosa, California at Sensational Manor. It is kind of pleasantly warm outside today. It's been super hot um, in the days leading up to today, a little too hot for my tastes. I'm more of a uh, marine layer kind of guy, and it's been upwards of about 100 degrees here at certain points this summertime, but we are just slogging along, and I am taking a moment to come to you with another quick shot of the MSGV podcast here today in its reduced summer format. Um, today, we're going to be taking a look at a tale of two records. We're going to do a head-to-head record review, something we have not done here before on the show. Today, we're going to take a look at, on one hand, the album Standing in the Spotlight by Dee Dee King, also known as Dee Dee Ramone. And we are going to put that album up to the test against Be a Man by none other than Randy Macho Man Savage. Two records that... Um, for me are kind of pivotal uh, points in popular culture, but two records that I am often surprised people are not familiar with. So um, on one hand, it seems like maybe kind of a lame topic because everyone's already heard these albums and put in their two cents about it. But then on the other hand, I, like I said, I am always surprised um, when people I talk to you aren't familiar with these records, uh, haven't heard them. And even if you had, let's just have some fun uh, taking a look back at them and seeing how they measure up against one another. And I guess the last thing I want to add um, as a preface is why these two albums? Why are these two going up head to head? Uh, The reason, if you're not familiar with them, is that each one is a quote unquote hip hop effort by an artist who otherwise is not particularly renowned for their um, participation in hip hop culture or hip hop music or entertainment or what have you. Um, Dee Dee King, again, was Dee Dee Ramone, bass player for the seminal punk rock band, The Ramones. And Macho Man Randy Savage is Macho Man Randy Savage, a world-famous professional wrestling star, a fellow who, when you say rap music, um, he isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to mind, but he indeed recorded a rap record, which we are going to look at. But before we do... I have one bonus story that I forgot to add to um, last episode of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, the last um, and first uh, volume of summer specials that I did um, about watching UFC VHS tapes back in the day. It really blows my mind that I forgot to tell this story because it kind of was the big punchline of the whole thing. But um, the way things roll here um, at the MSGV podcast, it's all a completely sort of freestyle improv effort. I don't script this out. I just kind of have a general idea of what I want to talk about, and I talk. And um, that can be a good format because I don't think 
if I relied on scripting things out, the show would never get done. I just don't have the time. It's easier for me to just set up, set up a mic and talk. Um, the downside is sometimes things just fall through the cracks. It's hard to, to remember everything when I, that stream of consciousness gets going. But, hey, that's why we're here with Volume 2 of Summer Specials, so I can tack on that story from last time. So basically the deal is if you listen to the last episode or if you remember from last time, I lived in a house with a fellow named Bart and a fellow named Brian. Brian worked at a video store and would bring home uh, – UFC uh, pay-per-views on VHS tape um, back in, this was taking place in around the year 1999. And in addition to um, UFC being in kind of its infancy and coming into its own, the whole world of the internet was also in its early days um, at the time. I mean, I guess if you want to look at the course of human history and how long you know, digital communication and technology will likely be with us, barring some sort of cataclysmic social collapse. I guess you could still say that the internet is in its infancy, but this was in its, its real infancy, its micro-infancy. Um, let's put it this way. The, the only connection to the internet we had in that house was, um, I think maybe Brian had a computer in his room and he had his own phone jack in his room and because uh, everything was still dial-up based back then dial-up internet connection. You use the the land phone line to connect to the internet through a modem on your computer. Um, he had a computer and I think a phone line in his room, so he used internet you know, in there by himself. And then um, I had this really crummy computer. Um, I think it was even crummy by the standards of the day um, set up in my room with this long, long, long phone extension cord that would go under my door, wrap all the way down the hall through the house into the kitchen where the other phone jack was. Um, and basically like if someone was trying to use the phone, you couldn't also be on the internet. Like I'd often, I'd, I'd be plugged in, I'd be checking my email or something. And all of a sudden I'd get disconnected, disconnected, excuse me, because some fool would want to use the phone. They just yank, you know, my cord out of the wall and put the phone cord back in. But anyway, um, so early days of the internet and it, it was really the wild west out there as far as online information and what was available was concerned. It wasn't, you know, there was no Wikipedia. Um, it was still with, um, niche interests like MMA and UFC was at the time. Um, you, information wasn't always readily available. You had to kind of dig to find out more about things. And, um, so in watching our UFC tapes, um, we would do digging out of curiosity. Like, is this stuff real? Um, who are these guys? Who's putting on these fights? Um, when did they actually happen? Uh, all this kind of stuff. I mean, we were just literally just inserting a, um, VHS cassette tape into a machine and watching what was on there. There was no additional information. There was no extra bells and whistles, where you could know what you were looking at. You were looking at whatever footage was on there. So we'd, we'd be online trying to find out more information about what was really going on with the UFC. What was this thing? And in the process of doing that, I think um, I knew there was like some early form of an internet um, white pages. Um, white pages was like individual residence phone numbers, right? Versus yellow pages. Yeah. Anyway, there was an early internet white pages thing where you could just type in someone's name and get their, um, phone number and address. And this the same kind of stuff exists now, but it was just real straightforward. Now you kind of have to do a Google search on somebody and, um, you may or may not end up on a site that's just kind of trying to tease you into visiting there and paying more money to get the information you're actually looking for. But this was just literally type in a first name and a last name and give you a list of addresses and phone numbers. I can't remember what the site was called or, you know, who hosted it or whatever. But um, one day I was like, you know, a lot of the MMA guys, they have sort of uh, unique and outlandish names. So I wonder what would happen if we typed in their names. 
And so I typed in the name Oleg Tektarov, who was a UFC fighter, a Sambo fighter uh, from the former Soviet Union, I believe. And sure enough, an Oleg Tektarov based out of, I believe, San Jose, California, or somewhere thereabouts came up with a phone number and an address. And I thought, that's got to be him, because a lot of the fighters were San Jose based. And, you know, how many Oleg Tektarovs are there running around the world, right? So, um, I thought, well, I found him. So then there was another guy who at the time was a subject of much derision among Bart Bride and I, this fighter that like totally irritated us, uh, who was in a lot of the early UFCs, a fellow by the name of Paul the Polar Bear Varlins. And I typed in Paul Varlins and got another San Jose or Sunnyvale, somewhere in that vicinity, phone number and address. Oh my God, these are these guys. So I mentioned it to Barton Brown. I was like, look, I'm typing in these names into the computer. I'm getting the, the phone numbers and addresses for these UFC fighters. And also because at the time, you know, a UFC fighter wasn't really a celebrity in, the, in any significant sense of the word. I mean, it was, it was such a fringe thing. It's not like anyone was going to be recognizing these guys or they didn't also have to have day jobs or whatever. They were just kind of average Joes who knew how to fight and were fighting on, on pay-per-view, which was later transferred onto VHS. But anyway, um, we all kind of thought it was funny. And then someone had the bright idea. Maybe it was Bart was like, dude, we should get some postcards and like, basically like, you know, do the equivalent of like prank calling these guys, but send them like prank postcards. So, um, we did, we got some postcards, um, you know, some real kind of saccharine, you know, missing you, uh, kind of stuff you'd send your grandma or great grandma in the retirement home or whatever with like flowers on it and really like generic, Hallmark looking crap. And, um, we filled out these postcards and to, I think the Oleg Taktarov one, we were actually complimentary of him. We're like, Oleg, you're the man. We love you. And sent that one, walked over to the mailbox, threw it in the mail, sent it out. Paul Varlin's one, we were not as sparing. We, we I can't remember why, but we were all anti Paul Varlin's back then. He, he irritated us for some reason. I think he, he kind of had a, like an annoying facial expression. I think he'd get like, he was one of those guys, who would, ah! you know, just get all like uh, in the zone and yelly and stuff like that. So that, that was kind of a point of amusement for us. So the Paul Varlin's one was more, um, I guess I'd say abusive. I think it was something along the lines of like, uh, um, you know, um, Hey, there's sweet cheeks. Saw you fight in UFC. You sucked. You know, something lame like that. Put that in the mail, send it out, send it on its way. So for all I know, Oleg Taktarov uh, received a complimentary postcard and Paul Varlins received a diss from a couple of punks up in Santa Rosa, California. But after this happened, I got really paranoid because again, this was early days of the internet. It, it was still kind of voodoo to me. I didn't understand how it really worked. So I was like, what if there's a way that these guys are going to get a notification that like I looked them up, you know, and then they get these postcards and they're somehow going to figure out it's us. And they're going to show us, show up at our house and kill us. I mean, like literally these guys would physically kill us, you know? So, um, and this was before, you know, I was pretty young still. I hadn't quite gotten a handle on some of my, um, psychological issues, I guess you'd say. And I tend towards, um, I can tend towards a certain amount of, paranoia and sort of like unrealistic fears and worries at the time I didn't have a point of reference for that I wasn't aware of it so um, I just thought what I was thinking was perfectly rational so I spent a, probably a good two weeks looking over my shoulder probably contemplating picking up a firearm you know 
Uh, looking out the the blinds before leaving the house, but nothing ever came of it. Yeah, I wonder if those guys got those postcards. You know, I wonder. I wonder if they'd remember now if I asked them. I think Paul Varlins is on Facebook. Maybe I should ask him about it. Then again, maybe not. I'd rather just let sleeping dogs lie or sleeping bears lie, as it were. But anyway, that was just kind of a funny, funny postscript to that look back at the UFC VHS days. But now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to look at standing in the spotlight in one corner, a be a man in the other. Who will survive and what will be the outcome when we return on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network? Welcome back to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast, Summer Special Volume 2, where we are taking a look at the album Standing in the Spotlight by D.D. King versus the album Be a Man by Randy Macho Man Savage. So we're going to start off in the blue corner, coming to the ring at six feet tall, weight unknown, fighting out of Hollywood, California, by way of Fort Lee, Virginia, the artist formerly known as Dee Dee Ramone, the man known as Douglas Glenn Colvin, but for our purposes, the rapper known as Dee Dee King. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dee Dee Ramone was the bass player for the punk rock band The Ramones, based out of New York City, and operating from 1974 to 1996. Uh, Dee Dee was in the band till about 1989, so they continued on for quite a while without him, but he was definitely a key and iconic founding member of the band. He co-wrote and wrote a lot of their songs, and um, his image behind the bass and his black leather jacket is a pretty familiar part of the Ramones iconography, and the Ramones are a very iconic band. They're definitely one of the most influential bands in my life. Um... They were really the root of a lot of the music that has influenced me over the years. And you can go back and listen to that. Uh, listen to me talk about that a bit in uh, previous episodes of the podcast where I talked about my history with music. I don't think I really got into the Ramones a lot on there, but the Ramones were and always have been and always will be just kind of a real guiding light in my general um, sort of aesthetic worldview at large. I really identify with the Ramones and they were very influential to me. But we are not talking about the Ramones today. We're talking about this strange kind of solo career that Dee Dee branched off into in 1987. So it was a couple years before he actually left the band. I know sometimes people cite that um, he left the band because of his Dee Dee King rap project, but that does not seem to be the case. Um, from everything I've read, um, he was recording these albums and this was going on while he was still in the Ramones. 
So I remember first reading about Dee Dee Ramone's turn as Dee Dee King. Back when I was a teenager, sometime back during the 1990s, I think I came across it in a some sort of record um, review collection that was talking about the Ramones, and then there was just kind of a side note about Dee Dee's rap career. But obviously this was pre-internet, so this was in a print book or magazine. It wasn't as if there was a link I could click on to find out more about it. And I remember kind of being confused when I saw this and just think, thinking maybe I was I was kind of imagining things. Or I mean, how would this work? Why would Dee Dee Ramone have been recording a rap record? Was it, was it a joke? Was it for real? What was it? It just seemed very strange to me. And I, I was pretty curious about it, but at the same time, I've never been good at being a collector. You know, a lot, a lot of people I know, if they had caught wind of something like this and they were interested, they'd be pounding the pavement trying to find a copy of the record. Um, I, I, that was never me. I, I'm just like pull off from the shelf whatever I can easily get a hold of. I, I don't have a lot of patience for that kind of stuff. So it was just kind of like in one ear out the other. I mean, it, it left a mark and I was curious, but I, I, there wasn't really much I could do to find out about it. And I kind of, it was always in the back of my mind over the years, but I never really encountered um, any D.D. King material. Flash forward to about 2009 when uh, YouTube first came on the scene. Pretty shortly after YouTube became a thing, I fell into the trap of immersing myself in hours-long YouTube rabbit holes where something would occur to me, some video footage from the past that I hadn't seen in, in 10 or more years, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, oh, I can look this up on YouTube. So I'd look up one thing on YouTube. One thing would lead to another. Another thing would lead to yet another. And next thing I knew, six hours would have passed. And I, this still happens now and again with YouTube, but it was particularly prevalent in those early days. And one of those things that occurred to me um, in the early first couple of years of YouTube was, my God, I can finally look up the D.D. King record. I can find out what this is all about. So the first thing I found was a track, um, and we actually listened to it coming out of the break, um, or listened to part of it. Um, it was a song called Funky Man, and I love that song. Unfortunately, that song is not actually on the Standing in the Spotlight full-length album that uh, Dee Dee Ramone released as Dee Dee King. It was a single. But um, I really got into that record, or into that single, um, something about the vibe, like the griminess of it, and the absurdity of Dee Dee rapping badly over kind of blaring uh, early Run DMC-style electric guitars. Um it just it, it just really seemed to fit Didi's persona, and that's really um, the main takeaway I get from um, his full length album um, as well. And so let's just get right into it here. Even now in the year 2017, when I have full access to the entire album at the click of a button, um, easy to find Wikipedia entries on it, other entries online, I still can't get a lot of concrete information on what was up behind the whole D.D. King experiment. Other than the fact that um, in 1987, he decided to um, uh, do the Funky Man single. And then it was actually two years later in 89, right before uh, he quit uh, the Ramones, but while he was still in the band, that he recorded the full-length album Standing in the Spotlight. Um other than that, it, it's just, it. I can't, why rap? I don't really know. I can't find a good um, uh, take on this. Other than, um, if you look up on Wikipedia, 
It does mention that rap music was something he learned about uh, during a stint in rehab. And that around the time that he did the Funky Man single in 87, he started showing up to Ramon shows in full rap regalia, which apparently frustrated his bandmates. Um, that's bad on them. Uh, you, you, I'm all for it. You know, I mean, the, the, by 87, I mean, the Ramones have been around for more than a decade, and this guy's trying to reinvent himself and bring, bring a new look to the band, a new shtick, a new gimmick. All for it, personally. Sadly, we live in a world where people are just so afraid to experiment with gimmicks. They're so afraid of um, people busting out new identities, um, new shticks. Uh, I love that stuff. So for me, the D.D. King thing, uh, I think it's part of why it always piqued my interest. It was him kind of refreshing himself, revitalizing himself. There's there's certain people in um, the celebrity world, the entertainment world that are really good at doing this and doing it successfully. Uh, Madonna is one, reinventing herself every five to ten years. Um, in wrestling, Chris Jericho is the same way. And I really admire that. Like, why, why bust the same shtick for, for 30 years? You know, I mean, new variations on on the old thing. Thumbs up here um, at the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. So re- really uh, bad on the rest of the Ramones for being such humorless uh, fools about uh, Dee Dee's rap persona. Um, I also see that his rap output has a good amount of haters in the critic scene as well. I'm reading here that some stuffed shirt named Matt Carlson wrote that the album, quote, will go down in the annals of pop culture as one of the worst recordings of all time, which even if that were true, Matt, at least this is going down in the annals of all time where you're a stuffed shirt on a Wikipedia page, you know? (laughs) See, I'm not opposed to critics or criticism across the board. In fact, I think there's a, a great place for it. Um, I think with criticism, you need to be careful that you are seeking out critics who, um, A, that you kind of vibe with. So you realize like, oh, if this person feels this way about something, chances are like I I probably might feel the same way or I do feel the same way or it just kind of helps me bounce off how I feel about this. But you kind of want to, I guess, unless you're really looking for a totally divergent opinion, helps to avoid critics that are just on such a different uh, wavelength than you that you guys aren't even going to be communicating about the same things. Um, but furthermore, I find it really important to find critics that can put things into context. Um, it's like with film criticism, you don't want someone who's trying to rate or describe Buckaroo Banzai using the same set of expectations and terms that they would for, I don't know, terms of endearment. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You have to, you have to be able to contextualize and a lot of critics seem very unable to do that in particular in the music world. God, music people are so humorless. Music critics, music fans, musicians, they're all so serious and uptight. Come on, man. It's fun. It's rock and roll. It's supposed to be stupid. And that's where we are. That's what brings us to 1989 Standing in the Spotlight. It is a stupid masterpiece, in my opinion. You know, my friend Jerry, who I've talked about on the show before, works at a record store. um, And it was actually, I was talking to him about this record, which is what gave me the idea to do this show. Um, but I was talking to him about how I, I overheard some people bagging on it, making fun of it, how horrible it is. And I was telling him, you know, it's like people, I, I just feel like this record is a real litmus test of whether a person sucks or not. Like if, if you can't, I don't mean you got to think it's like a great record, but if you, if you, you can't get it, if you don't get the shtick, if you don't get the kind of tongue in cheek, um, then you're just kind of no fun, man. This record's just all about fun. And I, I didn't put it that, uh, uh, eloquently, not that that was eloquent, but I, I think I said something more along the lines of like, 
um, you know, if you don't like this record, you suck as a person. And uh, he was like, uh, they should really put that on the front album sticker, which wouldn't be a bad idea. But anyway, let's let's talk about let's talk about this record. Let's talk about why. Let's talk about um, uh, why um, it's a hit with me. So the Ramones, as I mentioned, were based out of New York City, and they were kind of the um, pinnacle or the most recognizable band of an entire scene of music that came out of New York in the 70s. And it was seedy, and it was greasy, and it was stupid, and it was dangerous. And it was it was the New York City punk rock um, of, the, of the 70s, the, the first wave of punk rock music. And you had the New York Dolls, you had television, you had Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, uh, you had other bands that weren't in New York but played there, the Dead Boys. Um, but all these bands that were kind of bringing rock and roll back to its roots, bringing back fun, bringing back stupidity, and bringing back danger, kind of the three elements of rock and roll music. Um, and this was during a time where New York City itself was very seedy, very greasy, and could also sort of be characterized by fun, stupidity, and danger. And so the, the, these bands were kind of a reflection of, of that New York City, the, the, rotten, the Big Apple with the rotten core, the alligators in the sewers. Uh, you know, the, the guys on the street corner selling adult magazines, the muggers in the alleyway. Um, it's a New York City that doesn't exist anymore. It was a New York City that existed when I was a child in the 70s and 80s, and I remember just kind of um, being aware of it from afar, mainly through reading comic books. Because if you'll notice, comic books based out of New York in the 70s and the 80s, there was a lot more, um, you know, Spider-Man constantly um, – uh, having to interrupt his uh, beefs with supervillains, just take out run-of-the-mill muggers or run-of-the-mill, you know, purse snatchers. Um, I don't feel like you see that as much anymore in comics, especially not in comic book movies. It's all a lot more sanitized, but New York City is a lot more sanitized now. The first time I went to New York was um, in 2002. And kind of to my surprise, e even when I went through some of the um, more quote-unquote bad areas of the city, it was a much more kind of clean, safe, sanitized place than it, than any of the cities we have out here. You know, you go to San Francisco and there's just people like living in the streets, cursing at you when you walk by, just being super belligerent. I didn't see any of that there. And it was almost like um, during those Giuliani years, they somehow disappeared everyone into underground camps or something. Um, but the um, New York City of the 70s and the 80s was this grimy place. Um, I know a lot of people didn't like this TV show, but there was that show um, on HBO about a year or so ago, Vinyl. And uh, Vinyl, whether, whether it was a good show or a bad show, really depicted the, the New York City at that time um, as uh, embodied in those punk bands. Just this, the um, kind of uh, brown duster leather jackets and uh, greasy hair and, uh, you know, switchblades and cigarettes dangling out of the mouth. And uh, that was 70s New York. That was 70s punk. That was the Ramones. That was Dee Dee Ramone. But by taking on this rap persona and putting out a quote-unquote rap record, Dee Dee kind of took the whole spirit of 70s New York, 80s New York, the whole spirit of 70s and 80s um, New York City punk rock, and the whole spirit of just stupid, dangerous, seedy fun, and really distilled it. Um, took out, not that there were, I mean, the Ramones are kind of known for being a no-frills band, but but took out even the, any of the frills they had to where it's really just... A sleazy guy on a street corner giving you his rap. And in this case, rap meaning not 
the rap that we've come to associate with hip hop music and everything, but really the, the original meaning of the term, the kind of the carnival guy spitting a bunch of fast talking uh, lines at you, trying to con you about something. The, the the used car salesman giving you his rap. The 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 guy on the corner trying to sell fake gold watches, giving you his rap. Um, that is what is really going on here with this record. That is what I think is missed um, by a lot of the humorless critics who just see this as a bad rap record. It's not a bad rap record. It's D.D. King spitting his game at you from some sketchy corner in Times Square before uh, all the chain restaurants moved in. So I think I I don't want to like do a rundown of each track on this record or anything. If you are moved by anything I'm saying or interested at all, you can check it out for yourself. It is pretty readily available these days. Um, I'm an Apple Music subscriber and I picked it up over there. But I will talk about a few of the tracks that stood out to me and why they did. Um, The very first track, Mashed Potato Time, time is just such a quintessential New York City guy on the street corner song it's got a real 1950s doo-wop sound to it with backup singers and everything but it's 1950s as devolved into the 70s and 80s it's phil specter once his hair had grown out and he'd started shooting people you know it's like kind of an off-kilter wonky you know sort of wholesome sounding on the outside but something's gone horribly wrong on the inside kind of vibe and you can just picture Dee Dee there you know sitting on a stoop on a brownstone uh, wearing a wife beater wearing gold chains slicking his hair back with a switchblade comb um, just uh, letting you know that it's it's time to rock it's time to rap it's time for the mashed potato attack Uh, You know, I mean, just driving it home that he's the man on top, he can rock and hip-hop, other rappers getting sour, he's the man of the hour. How can you you hate that? How can that make you angry? It's great. It's it's just like fun, great, stupid stuff. And so moving right along, that track is followed up with another one I really like off the record um, entitled Too Much to Drink. It's basically Dee Dee out Beastie Boying the Beastie Boys. Um... Again, loud, kind of run-DMC type guitars in the background. Um, Dee Dee telling us his tale of uh, just kind of sitting in his apartment, feeling like he has writer's block, and thinking about taking his jewelry to the pawn shop. And you can just picture him there, sort of Travis Bickle style on a hot, humid summer's New York City day um, when he suddenly receives a visit from the devil who encourages him to have a little too much to drink. And he goes on to talk about Bailey cream, Heineken, and very other libations that uh, um, lead him astray. But as I mentioned earlier, um, Didi had gone through rehab at this point, so um, really, um, by the end of the song, he's put himself back on the straight and narrow, and he does not submit to those temptations. But again, an- another um, another great New York City fable, parable, by the great Didi King. Um, another one with a real tangible... Uh, feeling to it kind of puts us in his shoes and another one that just makes me quite frankly not understand why um someone couldn't just sit back and enjoy the ride with this great record this song is followed by track number three which i'm going to shout out to because at least one other person got this record um at the time that it was recorded um this next song, Baby Doll, comes out of left field and suddenly has a DD sounding as if he is 
doing his best uh, take on being in The Cure. Um, and, yeah, The Cure is around by this point, I was going to say. Yeah, but anyway, this comes out of left field, kind of ballady, gothy, um, weepy song called Baby Doll. But Baby Doll was a ballad written for his wife, Vera. And according to Vera's book, Poison Heart, when he played the song for her, they both cried. So props to Dee Dee, props to Vera for getting it. At least someone was on his wavelength, and I imagine that's why they were married. Um, I'm going to talk about one last song on this record, and it is for very um, obvious reasons why this one stands out to yours truly, and this is a song called The Crusher. Now, if you look back in 1970s and 1980s New York City, nothing is more 70s and 80s New York than professional wrestling and the World Wide Wrestling Federation coming to you from Madison Square Garden. Yes, the WWWF was Vince McMahon of the WWF's father, Vince McMahon Sr.'s promotion that emanated out of New York City and eventually became the WWF and WWE that we know today. And they were very famous for running shows at the Madison Square Garden in New York City. And in this song, The Crusher, Dee Dee literally... Um, evokes the garden he wants to wrestle in the garden he's on his way to stardom and he's got his eyes on the russian bear and those of you who know can help me uh educate any of those who don't out there um as we tell them that the russian bear was none other than ivan koloff a canadian professional wrestler who uh his gimmick he masqueraded as a soviet russian and once even held the WWWF World Heavyweight Championship. Um, I don't know if you can hear, there's some sirens off in the background that are kind of adding to the, the 70s New York vibe here. But, um, so in this song, The Crusher, Dee envisions himself as the Crusher King of the Ring, and he's ready for the Russian bear. He wants him to go back to Russia. He wants him to go back home. And this song just goes to show that the great Dee Dee King, also known as Dee Dee Ramon, must have been an aficionado of the squared circle, and in particular one of the greatest squared circles of all time, the square that is Madison Square Garden. So I've never rated something, um, rated a pop culture artifact here on the podcast before. Today is going to be the first time. And while over on the Toys R Us report, IC Robots employs the source scale, I'm not totally familiar with that scale. Um, so instead, I'm going to implement uh, my own rating scale for this show, one that I am much more familiar with. And we're going to go with the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Star System. Star system that goes from zero to five stars, although it isn't limited to five stars, as we've learned in the last year, there is no limit. So, so matches could be, or, or any artifact could be six stars or more, but generally speaking, we're going zero to five stars. And so in the case of standing in the spotlight by D.D. King, I am going to give it Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast rating of drum roll, please. Three and a half stars. Yes, three and a half stars. This record, I'm not usually going to be found just kicking back and listening to it out of the blue, but I do feel that it is a significant artistic achievement, and it is also an iconic moment in pop culture history that frankly needs more recognition than it's gotten. So forget you, music critic Matt Carlton and company. Take a long walk off a short pier. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. This is a 3.5 star album. Deal with it.
And now it's time to set our sights on the red corner, where, coming to the ring at 6 feet 2 inches tall, weighing in at 237 pounds, fighting out of Sarasota, Florida, by way of Columbus, Ohio, it is Randy Macho Man Savage. And I'm... I hope everyone listening to this is familiar with the one and only Macho Man, professional wrestler from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Yeah. Also known as a pitch man for Slim Jim uh, beef jerky-ish snacks. Uh, Macho Man was a big star in the WWF and WCW, also a territorial star in the Memphis area. His brother, Lanny Poffo, was uh, known as the genius in WWF, as well as Leaping Lanny Poffo. You may remember him. Macho Man is it's, it, one of the just icons in popular culture. He's a giant, a giant among giants. Uh, everyone knows the Macho Man. Oh, Randy Savage, yeah, he's got that real, recognizable voice, oh yeah, and he used to come to the ring with Elizabeth Diggett. But um, Macho Man, actually, um, speaking to that, um, whatever the programming he appeared on, his uh, kind of debut in WWF, and I was actually looking for it uh, recently on the WWE Network, and I don't think it's on there. Um, it was something I saw it on TV, like when it aired, um, in its actual day, like when I was a kid, I was watching it there on TV, uh, here on Wikipedia, it's saying it happens on Tuesday night Titans. And I think those are actually on the network, but I might not have been looking at those, but, um, is that it? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, anyway, I remember there was a scene where he was being courted by a lot of different managers, you know, Bobby Heenan, Jimmy Hart, and ultimately chose Ooh, Elizabeth, yeah, the first lady of wrestling. Um, and uh, that was just one of the first wrestling angles that I vividly remember watching um, that really, I understood everything that was going on and I was actually watching it for real. It wasn't just like bits and pieces on a clip show or something. I watched it as it happened. And from then on, Macho Man was one of my favorite professional wrestlers um, all through the 80s, all through the 90s, all through the early 2000s, yeah, even in WCW. Um, but uh, I, I never really saw him in TNA, though. But I, it's just really hard to put into words the enormity of this individual as a popular culture figure, as a, as a performance artist. I, I think I put him right under Roddy Piper for me. Um, I just rem I remember watching him uh, as a kid, and there's a saying in wrestling that you know um, a wrestler is really effective at their craft when you're watching wrestling and you're saying to yourself, you know, I know this is quote-unquote fake, but, but that guy – that guy's real. And that's how I always felt about the macho man. Um, you remember just screaming at the TV because like, uh, um, a lot of times he'd go to the top rope for his elbow drop and then miss it and then end up losing the match. And every time it's like, no, dude, the risk-reward ratio isn't worth it. Don't go to the top rope. But uh, um, yeah, just lots of great memories growing up watching the macho man. But a strange thing happened with the macho man. A strange thing indeed was um, – God, what year was it? I, I should have this up here now. But um, – uh, so yeah, it was in uh, 2003 where he he was kind of off the scene. It, I, he really unceremoniously disappeared from television. He like he'd been on WCW and he was like super jacked up and he had this like girlfriend, Gorgeous George, and uh, he was really on the last legs of his in ring career. And then he just kind of wasn't on TV anymore. Um, oh, and then WCW folded, and there was never even any mention of him going back to WWF or anything like that. Um, 
but he reappeared. He reappeared. Uh, you might remember in that first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man when old Bonesaw is ready. He played that character Bonesaw, uh, uh, who was the proverbial, you know, the professional wrestler that, that Spider-Man um, shows off his powers uh, against, you know, before he becomes a hero. But uh, showed up in Spider-Man, and I kept thinking, oh, well, he's in Spider-Man. He's gonna he's gonna come back. He's gonna make some new appearance. But the only other thing that he really came on the radar with um, until right before he died and he showed up in a, in a commercial for like a WWE all-stars, like legends versus current guys video game um, was all of a sudden word started to come out that Macho Man was going to be releasing a rap record. So by 2003, there was some internet. Um, there were definitely wrestling websites where you could pick up news. Um, so it wasn't exactly like with Didi Ramon where it was just this reference and there was just no way to follow up on it, but it's still, there wasn't a lot of news on it. It was really weird. Like, uh, even wrestling sites were just like, so Macho Man's releasing a rap record. All right. See you later. It, just no real context. Like what, what is this rap? Why rap? Like, I mean, it's, he's not, there's nothing about him that screamed rap. I, I guess except the distinctive voice, though. But um, it's still, it, it, it was really out of left field. And um, it almost, again, it, just like with standing in the spotlight, it was almost like, is this even real? And sure enough, it was. It dropped. And uh, I remember, um, I don't think, I've never seen a physical copy of that record. I remember the first time I ever heard it, 2003, when it came out, it was like the early days of file sharing and Napster and all that stuff. And I remember um, bit torrenting a copy of the single Be a Man hearing that. And for years, that was the only thing I'd heard off that record. Um, I think I might have heard um, the record. Um, uh, he's got a record about Mr. Perfect. Or not a record, a song about Mr. Perfect. I think I heard that one too. The Perfect Friend. Um, but that was all I'd heard about, uh, all I heard off the record for many years. So most of my opinions about it were around that. And, and everything about the record to me was just overshadowed by why did this record happen? How did this record happen? And there's still not really great information about it. He put this record out. Uh, I guess he went on tour and it's seen here on Wikipedia that it featured Brian Adams as his bodyguard and Ron Harris as his touring manager. And for those of you familiar with wrestling, you'll recognize those names. It's just really random. Um, but it exists. And hey, in the year 2017, it is on Apple Music. So for the first time, I, you know, I thought I was talking to Jerry. I thought about standing in the spotlight. It occurred to me I should just check it out online and sit down and listen to the whole thing. So I don't think I'd ever listen to the record in its entirety. Then after that, next thing that came up in the queue was like, oh, now it's time to look up Be a Man. And sure enough, there it was on Apple Music. So I had access for the first time ever in over 10 years of its existence um, to Randy Savage's Be a Man. And so now I can share with you my thoughts on the record. Now, this is another record, much like Standing in the Spotlight, and probably even more so in some ways, just because wrestling, people always like, oh, ho, ho, wrestling, what a joke, ha, ha. Now this idiot put out a record. Wrestlers are stupid. Um, totally not understanding the performance art of professional wrestling and its depth and its influence on the world. But let's put that aside. Um, this record, it's easy for it to become a laughing stock because it's Randy Savage doing a rap record, you know, <laughs> on the surface, that sounds kind of strange, but I will say about this record, it is further testimony to the legacy of the macho man because uh, through sheer force of personality and sheer power of charisma, he is able to enter a medium that he has no innate talent for 
and where he's working with extremely questionable material and he's able to own it. You know, if anyone else um, tried to get on the mic and intone the verse, Hollywood Hulkster, you're at the end of your rope and I'm a kick you in the butt and wash your mouth out with soap, it'd probably be a colossal fail. But with Macho Man, you're just bobbing your head and you're saying, yeah, Macho, you tell him. Tell him, Macho Man. Um, This album is entirely, um, it it lives and dies, and and, and it lives, quite frankly, in in my opinion, on just that raspy baritone of the Macho Man's voice and who he is, and he pulls this garbage. Oh, yeah, he pulls it so high out of the dumpster and on to the squared circle. Yeah, because the cream always rises to the top. Isn't that right, Elizabeth? Dude, I feel like I'm developing hypertension doing uh, that bad Macho Man impersonation. <laughs> oh, chest pains. Anyway, um, so with this record, I mean, it is what it is. I, it's Macho Man on wax. It's Macho Man. It's, it's you know, I was going to say, I was going to talk about really, there's really two tracks off this record that are, that are, are kind of the standout tracks in my mind. One of them is the quintessential Be A Man, the title track, which is a great diss track about Hulk Hogan. Um, Hulk Hogan and Macho Man's kind of frenemy thing intertwined all through the 80s and 90s and, you know, it was a big part of both of their characters. And, you know, I loved watching all that stuff. I remember, you know, the night that the Mega Powers exploded on Saturday night's main event. That was like, that was a monumental night for me in not just wrestling, but my entire childhood television watching history. Um, so it's kind of fun to have it all tied up in this last, uh, you know, public gasp of it. Cause I don't really think that they really went back and forth much after this. Um, uh, you know, Hogan talked about him a bit in a positive way for the most part after his death and claims that they reconciled. Uh, but this was kind of it for the, for the Hulk, um, Hogan, Macho Man feud. So Be A Man is a real standout track. Lyrics are freaking hilarious, like kind of unintentionally. But again, Mach saves him just through force of self. Um, so that one. And then the other one that stood out to me, th- there's the one that kind of hokey. Uh, 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 where is it again? What's the name here? Um, the My Perfect Friend, which is his sort of atonal shout out to Mr. Perfect. That's kind of sweet. It's fun. But um, the other one that really stands out for me is kind of after the intro, it's the second track, but it's the first like bonafide track on the album. It's called I'm Back. And I kind of get chills listening to it now because it's almost like Randy talking to us from the other side. Because, you know, Macho Man is no longer with us great loss in the wrestling fan and professional wrestling community but listening to I'm back it's like you know he's still here that spirit's still out there in the world it'll never go away as long as we remember the macho man and this record it's not necessarily the, the most momentous way of remembering him I mean I'd much rather throw on you know Steamboat Savage from Wrestlemania 3 or whatever but this is just like his last last communication to us the fans and so I appreciate it for that and for that reason, and for the fact that it involves Macho Man, I'm going to give this record on the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Star Scale. Drum roll, please. Two and a half stars. Yeah, this is not one that I'm really going to be bumping ever. Um, I, I, I'll throw on I'm Back and Be a Man once in a blue moon for um, nostalgia purposes, but 
This isn't a great record, to be totally honest, but it's a Macho Man record, so there's that. And so, in the end, Dee Dee King and Standing in the Spotlight comes out victorious and on top over Randy Macho Man Savage and Be a Man here on Summer Special Volume 2 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Folks, thanks for tuning in for this just kind of fun episode here today. The summer's almost over. Kids are back in school in about a week. We are going to return to the mainstream continuity of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega universe shortly. I will be back with more episodes now that I've gotten this whole podcasting process dialed in and kind of some other things have settled down in my personal and work life. I am hopefully going to be a more well-oiled machine going into the fall season of the podcast and hopefully will be coming to you with more regularity. I'm happy I was able to get at least these two volumes of summer specials out. I don't think there are going to be any more. I think this is it for the summer special detour. We will be back to our regular scheduled programming soon. In the meantime, you can go to Facebook and like the IC Robots Facebook page for news and all things IC Robots Radio Network related. You can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever podcast feeds are available. You can check out IC Robots, the man behind the network, at IC Robots on Twitter. You can get a hold of me over on my defunct WordPress site, genovega.wordpress.com, where I have my contact information for my Facebook page. Send me a Facebook request, all requests accepted. And you can also uh, follow me over on Twitter at Sensational Vega, though, to be perfectly honest, I really don't use Twitter. Facebook is the best way to get a hold of me. Um, so check out how to find me there over on my WordPress site and send me a request. Um, you can also go to supportthereport.com, where for as little as $1 a month, you can support us here at the IC Robots Radio Network. And finally, IC Robots has a Redbubble store open now. I don't have the exact link in front of me, but if you go over to icrobots.com or the Facebook page, you can find links there. He's got stickers. He's got mugs. We've even got a Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast shirt available. So be sure to order one now. Help us out. Help us keep coming to you with all of our great shows. Well, mine, mediocre shows at best, but uh, the great Toys R Us report that IC Robots does is This Boring Life show, the Geek Fest Ranch show. Folks, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me. Until next time, this is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network, signing off. has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Radio Network. Not heard. <laughs>